You are now listening to the March 21st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have biblical stewardship, sermon, and refining faith. First, let's begin with biblical stewardship. Hello everyone, this is Brian Winston from Biblical Stewardship. The last time we talked about how the worries of the world means not trusting in the Lord's protection. Not trusting Him leads us to believe in the false promise that wealth will protect us instead. When we follow that false promise, then we'll have the hearts that love money and will abandon our faith. Therefore, We must be careful about the worries of the world. There's another reason why the worries of the world is not good. The worries of this world make us afraid of sharing. We think that since we don't have plenty, if we share what's ours, then we won't be able to live. This comes from our thinking that it's our wealth that allows us to live instead of trusting God to provide for our needs. Have you ever experienced a young child trying to feed you by taking some of the food from his hand and putting it in front of your mouth? Or have you seen young children sharing each other's food? How does this look in your eyes? Do you think, why is that child sharing with others? He should just eat his food. No, you wouldn't think this way. When you see a child trying to feed you or a child sharing with other children, You would look at the child in a loving way. Then you would want to give more to this child. Now what about the opposite? Say when mom or dad asks for a bite of food and the child looks the other way and turns his back, how would that parent feel? What about a child who doesn't share with his siblings and only feeds himself? Wouldn't you worry about how that child might grow up? What about God? who watches how we use our possessions, wouldn't he think the same way? Let's read Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 19 together. And you believers at Philippi know what happened when I left Macedonia. Not one church helped me in the matter of giving and receiving. You were the only one that did. That was in the early days when you first heard the good news. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help when I needed it, and you did it more than once. It is not that I want your gifts. What I really want is what is best for you. I have received my full pay and have more than enough. I have everything I need. That's because Epaphroditus brought me the gifts you sent. They are a sweet-smelling offering. They are a gift that God accepts. He is pleased with it. My God will meet all your needs. He will meet them in keeping with His wonderful riches. These riches come to you because you belong to Christ Jesus. As Apostle Paul went on his missionary journey, he built a church wherever he went through the Holy Spirit's leading. He built a church in Philippi, which was in Macedonia. Apostle Paul ended that ministry and left Macedonia to do ministry elsewhere. 
Even though the people of Philippi were new believers, they supported Apostle Paul with gifts as he was leaving for his missionary journey. Also, when he left Macedonia and stayed in Thessalonica, they supported him twice. Apostle Paul expressed his gratitude to the church members of Philippi and explained the meaning of their sharing. What was this sharing? Let's read verse 18 again. I have received my full pay and have more than enough. I have everything I need. That's because Epaphroditus brought me the gifts you sent. They are a sweet-smelling offering. They are a gift that God accepts. He is pleased with it. The Bible says that the gift from the church members of Philippi that they shared with Apostle Paul was a sweet-smelling offering that God accepts. It also says that God is pleased with it. Did you know about this truth? There is more of a possibility that the Philippians did their act without knowing this truth. They heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ and gained eternal life as a gift. Since this was so valuable, they shared what they had with Apostle Paul, who was going somewhere else to do his work again and wanted to help him. This act was a sweet-smelling offering that God accepts. Also, God was pleased with it. Why is that? God is pleased with a sinner who's been forgiven of one's sin and moves to a place of receiving life. This is also the reason why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. This is what God wanted. How pleased would God have been to see the church members of Philippi take part in such an act? Do you remember when Jesus said, Anything you did for one of the least important of these, you did for me? What they did for Apostle Paul is what they did for Jesus. What's amazing is that Apostle Paul prayed to God for these church members in Philippi. In verse 17, he says, He wants what is best for them. Then in verse 19, he gives them a more amazing word of promise. My God will meet all your needs. He will meet them in keeping with his wonderful riches. These riches come to you because you belong to Christ Jesus. This is an important point that I don't want you to misunderstand. The reason why a church member shares one's possessions with another church member is because it is an offering that God accepts and is pleased with. The focus is pleasing God. For that reason, God in His glory will abundantly fill the need. If one shares his possessions with another church member to have his own needs abundantly filled by God, then the motive is wrong. God will not be deceived. There are some people who cite Malachi chapter 3 and portray God as a God of investment or a God of gambling. They say, believe in God and give this much offering, then God will bless you and repay you ten or even a hundred times the amount. Be careful of these people who mislead church members in this way. The motive and purpose of what they're saying is all wrong. The church members of Philippi didn't help Apostle Paul to have their own needs abundantly filled by God. They knew that the precious gospel of Jesus Christ, which was shared to them, changed their lives to eternal ones. They thought it was right 
for that precious plan of God to be shared with many more people. That is why they shared what they had for Apostle Paul's ministry. When God abundantly filled the needs of the Philippian church members, where did they use their abundance? They obviously used it to please the Lord. For people who believe God and give offerings in order to receive ten or a hundred times the amount they gave, where would they use the amount they received? Do you think they would also use this amount to please God? I can tell you this with certainty. Looking at what we've been studying together until now, God is the master of everything. He entrusts wealth to those he wants to fulfill his work. Therefore, those who manage the possessions that was entrusted to them for the kingdom of God don't invest in God to gain ten or a hundred times, even though God could joyfully make it happen. God is not deceived. Trying to deceive him means one disdains him. So don't disdain him, but please him and give a sweet-smelling offering he will accept. This concludes today's session of Biblical Stewardship. Thank you for listening. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia, alleluia. Bright burning sun with golden beam, soft shining moon with silver gleam. Oh, praise Him, oh, praise Him, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Swift rushing wind so wild and strong, white clouds that sail in heaven Next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Hope for the Hurting. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. What I want to do is something a little differently than we normally do each week. Instead of just reading through the scripture here at the start, I want us to read it slowly and pause along the way. And I want to point out some of the details that the Holy Spirit has inspired the author to write 
in order to help us get a deeper grasp on the beauty of the story. Basically, I want to tell this story well to you. So we're gonna start here in verse one and move slowly. So keep in mind, this is only one of two books in the Bible named after a woman. The other is Esther. And this is the only book in the Old Testament named after someone who is not Jewish. So with that set up, let's read verse one. The Bible says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, let's pause there. But this is where we get a glimpse into the time period this story takes place in. In fact, hold your place here in Ruth and turn back in your Bible to the table of contents. And I want to remind you where this story fits into the story of Scripture that we have read over the last year. So you look at the first 17 books in the Old Testament, those books basically give us the history of the Old Testament. So the first five, Genesis through Deuteronomy, tell the story of God's people leading up to the promised land. Then the book of Josh, books of Joshua and Judges tell the story of God's people taking and settling in the promised land. And Joshua and Judges are fairly chronological, but then Ruth spotlights a story that happened during the middle of Judges. Most think somewhere around Judges chapter 10. The same thing happens later when you get to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra and Nehemiah happen pretty much chronologically. Then Esther highlights a story that happened in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the book of Ruth happened during the time of Judges in the Promised Land. And what that means is, so now come back to Ruth and take just one turn of a page to the left and you'll see the very end of the book of Judges, last verse, Judges 21, 25. You'll get a summary of this time period. Judges 21, 25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there was no king in Israel, everybody doing what was right in their own eyes, which was not a good thing. The people of God were indulging in all kinds of immorality and idolatry, and it was a dark time. Made even worse in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, by the fact that there was a famine in Bethlehem. Now, most of us in this setting don't know what famine is like. We have no idea what it means to be truly without food, not knowing if you will have enough to live, if your children will have enough to live, literally starving. Sometimes we say when we're hungry, I'm starving. But ladies and gentlemen, we are not starving. Far from it. What's even more interesting is the word Bethlehem means house of bread. So the picture here is that the house of bread has no bread. And as a result, this Jewish man flees Bethlehem to go to Moab. Now, as soon as we hear Moab, we need to realize that Moab is not just a foreign land geographically. Moab is a foreign land spiritually and historically. So the Moabites began back in Genesis 19 when Lot had an incestuous relationship with his daughter. Moabites were an outcast people from the start. Then they had resisted the Israelites when the Israelites wanted to pass through their land in the book of Numbers. And the women of Moab had seduced Jewish men into sexual immorality and idolatry, which resulted in 24,000 Israelites dying. 
They worshiped false gods. And in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God said that no Moabite can enter into the assembly of the Lord down to the 10th generation. They were a cursed people. So for a Jewish man to go to Moab was shameful, to say the least. It was like he was turning his back on God. Now, verse 2 says, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Side note here, Elimelech, his name means God is king. So think about it in a time where the judges ruled and there was no king. We have a clear announcement from the beginning of the story that God is king. Now, these next verses we're about to read introduce tragedy into the heart of the story. And like I mentioned earlier, the language here in the Hebrew has sort of a staccato style. It's Turk, terse, quick, almost unfeeling. We don't have details. We don't have emotion, just cold, hard, blunt, heavy facts. Verse three, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. There it is. In a matter of three verses, you have 10 years of torrential tragedy. And just like that, this family of four Israelites is down to one. First, Elimelech, the leader of the family who brought them to this strange land, he dies. And Naomi is left with a, is a widow in Moab raising two sons. The two sons marry Moabite women. Keep in mind the history there. Moabite women, the ones who seduced Israelite men into idolatry and immorality. Moabite women who are not even allowed into the assembly of the Lord. And then on top of this shame, after 10 years, her sons Malon and Kilion both die. Just imagine, we're not sure they died at the same time, one soon after the other, what happened? But talk about unexpected, in many ways, as far as we know in Naomi's life, undeserved tragedy. And the tragedy is only heightened by the fact that now Naomi is left not only without her husband and her sons and finds herself with two Moabite women, but neither of them has any heir to carry on their family, which was the curse of all curses. In the ancient Near East, particularly in Israel, there was no greater tragedy than for a family to cease to exist. And this sets up the ultimate problem in the book of Ruth because Naomi's family now teeters on extinction. To emphasize this, when you get to verse five, notice the author doesn't even mention Naomi's name. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. It's like Naomi has lost her identity. She's an aged widow with two barren daughters-in-law from Moab. She has no hope, no security, no home, no provision, nothing. If we don't feel the weight of this, then we will miss the wonder of verse six. At a time when this suffering woman and her two foreign daughters-in-law find themselves in utter hopelessness, verse six says, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab 
that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The Lord, it's the first time God has mentioned Yahweh, and he has visited his people with aid. He has restored Bethlehem to the house of bread it was intended to be. This is one of those verses that has figurative alliteration that just brightly jumps off the page in the backdrop of the dark verses that precede it. So verse seven says, she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, on her way, listen to what Naomi says to her daughters-in-law. This is the first dialogue that we see in the book. And some of the most important facets of the book of Ruth are going to happen in dialogue. The author uses specific, intentional conversations in over half of the book to communicate the point of the story. So pay attention close whenever you see these profound conversations take place. You just think about it. Up until this point, over 10 years have passed. People have died. Barrenness and hopelessness have sunk in. And nobody has even said a word in the story until verse 8. When Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Now this is more than just like goodbye and God bless you. She thanks them for their kindness to her. You can only imagine what these three women have been through together. Ruth and Orpah, they've left their own people to marry Israelite men. They're now set apart from the Moabites, living in years now of barrenness, both of them with no children, only to then see their husbands die. These three women have lived, struggled, cried, mourned together for years. Naomi turns to bless them and to free them up from any responsibility they felt they had toward her. Naomi says, you deserve better. You deserve husbands and a family, not to be stuck with me, an aged widow with nothing. You can imagine the emotion when the rest of verse nine continues. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Picture, they're weeping together as Naomi speaks. This weeping just grows among the three of them. They consider not being together as a sign of continued kindness to Naomi, they say, no, we will go with you. And Naomi responds and basically builds an argument for why they should stay and not go with her. Listen to her reasoning. It's pretty solid. She says, verse 11, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have Hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Basically, if they stay in Moab, they can find another husband, have a family, live happily ever after. But if they come with Naomi, they'll have nothing. Now, we've got to understand the picture here of why Naomi starts talking about the fact that she has no more sons, because the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, provided for situations like this. If there was a childless widow, then the brother of the husband would take the wife under his care and provide for her and his family. 
So if Naomi had other sons, they could provide for Orpah and Ruth. The problem is Naomi has no more sons. She doesn't even have a husband. Even if she did have a husband and were to have another son that day, Orpah and Ruth could never wait long enough to be cared for by her son. Naomi is basically saying to them, there's no hope for me and there will be no hope for you if you come with me. And it's even height in the last sentence there when she says to them, obviously the Lord's hand is against me. And the implication is, if you stay with me, the Lord's hand will also be against you. Why would you want to go with Naomi? You know, to be honest, when I've read this before, I've thought this was sounded almost kind of rude of Naomi. Like, does she not want them? But the reality at this point is that Naomi seems to be driven by kindness. She's saying, stay here, have a husband. Don't tie up your lot with mine. So what was the effect of her speech? Verse 14, and they lifted up their voices and wept again, feel the emotion in this scene. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So as they're weeping, Orpah walks away, but Ruth stays. Not just stays, she clings. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, to describe the marriage bond when a wife leaves her family to cleave, to cling to her husband. In the middle of the tears, Naomi says, verse 15, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And now the stage is set for one of the most memorable speeches in all of the Bible. Beauty, courage, commitment, devotion, love, loyalty, all wrapped up into one. Listen to what Ruth says. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. The language is simple yet profound. We can almost imagine Ruth loosening her embrace on Naomi, looking directly into her eyes and saying, don't try to talk me out of this. I am committed to you. As your God is my witness, I am committed to you, and he will judge me if I break this commitment. And in a single moment, Ruth forsakes everything. Her homeland, her people, her God's her religion, her safety, her future, her destiny, her everything to go with Naomi. Verse 18 says, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now pause there. See how this silence on the road to Bethlehem sets the stage for a somewhat awkward entrance into Bethlehem. So just put yourself in Naomi's shoes as she walks into this city that years before her husband and their family had turned their backs on. They had left the promised land to retreat into a pagan land. And now she's coming back, this time without her husband and without her sons. And not just without them, but she's coming back with a Moabite woman 
by her side. The word is out, the town is shocked. Is this Naomi? Now Naomi's name means pleasant. So listen to what happens. As soon as they ask, is this the pleasant one? Naomi responds, verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She says, my name is bitter. I left this place full everything I loved and everything that was most important to me. And I have come back with nothing. Now, it's at this point, I want you to put yourself in Ruth's shoes. Here is Naomi standing in front of a group of people, you by her side. And she says to them, I am bitter. And immediately, these women's eyes listening to Naomi turn to you and your face goes straight down because you are a picture of the bitterness the Almighty brings. When you get to verse 22, the writer says, Naomi returned and not just Ruth, but Ruth the Moabite. What a story. That's just chapter one. So let's Stop and think about the stage that's been set that I believe leads us to one clear, beautiful, glorious, life-transforming truth for you to take away today. And you may wonder, well, what is the point? What, what does all this have to do with me? I want to show you what it has to do with you. And when we think about the beginning of a story, we think about scene, characters, themes, tension that the author is setting up to be resolved in the end. So let's think about these different elements of a story and the notes you have in your bulletin. We'll go quickly through them. Think about Ruth as a story of two places. One, a land of promise, Bethlehem, the house of bread, the promised land that God has led his people to where they would experience his blessing as they trusted him. The other is a land of compromise, Moab, a land of foreign gods where Elimelech takes his family, the land where Ruth was born. We have a book in the Bible named after a woman from Moab, the cursed land of compromise. It's a story of two places and two people. Obviously, there are many characters introduced in chapter one. By the end of the chapter, we're down to two, Naomi and Ruth, and they seem so different. One is a woman with honest hurt. So our impression of Naomi at the end of chapter one may not be particularly positive, but we must not be too hard on her. Think of all she had been through. A famine, a move to pagan Moab, the death of her husband, the marriage of her sons to foreign wives, then the death of her sons, <coughs> excuse me, and no heir left at all. It has been blow after blow, tragedy after tragedy. She is hurting. And don't miss it. The writer has not pointed to any sin in Naomi that she has committed to bring her to this point. She had followed her husband. She'd cared for her sons. She'd cared for her daughters-in-law. 
It's not that she's perfect, but similar to the book of Job, this is a picture of the real yet often mysterious nature of suffering that leads us to the question, why? And I love how the Bible does not pretty this scene up. I love the honesty we see here. God's word does not gloss over life like it's easy and simple when the reality is we know it's often tough and hard. And Naomi's words at the end referring to herself as Mara are harsh, but they're honest. Let me ask you, do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like life has been hard on you? Do you ever feel like you can't take it anymore? Like it's been one thing after another? A woman with honest hurt that I'm guessing many people in this gathering today can identify with, if we're honest. If we will refuse to do what I think we're tempted to do and just come aside into church, just kind of put on a face and like pretend like everything's perfect when it's not. Two people, one with honest hurt and a woman with humble devotion. Ruth is a story with two points of need. As they come back to Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth have two basic needs. And this is the tension that's set up here. So first, they needed food. They left in a time of famine. They came back in a time of feasting to Bethlehem. But who's going to provide for them specifically? Which leads to the second point of need. They needed family. Not only did they need an heir to carry on their lives and families in the future, but they didn't even have a husband or son to provide for them in the present. So this is the main problem in the plot. Feel the tension here. How will these husbandless, childless widows survive in ancient Israel with no food and no family? Now, behind all of this, in and out of every single verse, we see God. Or maybe it would be better to say that sometimes in this story, we struggle to see God, which leads to two pictures of God that I would see I would say we see from the start of the story. For the first, I want to take you back to Naomi's words in verses 20 and 21. Look back at what she said when she enters into Bethlehem because four times she mentions God, but you'll notice she uses two different names for God. One is the name of God, Yahweh, that's translated the Lord, but the other is a title for God, Shaddai, that's translated the Almighty, and that's what we see first. She starts by saying, call me Mara for the Almighty. Now pause right there. This name for God, this title for God, Shaddai, is a title that emphasizes God's power. God is the Almighty, the one who is in control of all things. It's interesting. This is also one of the most common titles for God in the book of Job. It's used over 30 times there. God is the Almighty. Almighty, the omnipotent, the all-powerful one. So here's the first picture of God we see emphasized in Ruth 1. God is great. Amen. Do not miss this. This is so important. God is great. Even amidst the tragedy that surrounds Naomi, she does not doubt the greatness of God's power. Amen. And I emphasize this because it's not uncommon when people walk through suffering to hear them say, well, maybe God couldn't do this or that. Entire theologies today have been developed that explain suffering by saying God is doing the best he can, but there are some things that are out of his control. But this is not what the Bible teaches. 
The Bible teaches that God is almighty. He is all powerful. And well, yes, that leads to all kinds of questions about why this or that happens. Don't ever doubt that God is great. Amen. That God has all power to transform all things into good. Which leads to the second picture of God in the book of Ruth. God is great and he is good. The first time God is mentioned, we saw it in the book of Ruth, verse six, it's the name Yahweh, translated the Lord, which is the covenant name for God that reveals his love for all who trust in him. Did you notice, even when we get to Naomi's words at the end of the chapter, in the midst of her hurt, she uses this covenant name for God representing his faithful love for his people. And when we realize this, we realize that Naomi's words here are a humble declaration of faith. Yes, it's a struggling faith, a hurting faith, but that doesn't mean it's not faith in Almighty Yahweh. And let's be honest, we've all been there or will be there at some point when we walk through hard times, difficult circumstances, or terrible tragedy, and we find ourselves tempted to doubt one of these two pictures of God. We wonder sometimes if God is really in control. Is God really great? And part of the point of this book is to show amidst honest hurt and real pain and struggling faith that God is indeed both great and good. Amen. Which leads to the reality that Ruth is a story with one promise for God's people. And this is what I pray. I pray this promise will come alive in the hearts of men and women all across this gathering, all over this city right now, really anybody who listens to this in the future, that all of us would hear and believe and know this promise. Because he is great and because he is good, God takes sorrowful tragedy and turns it into surprising triumph. We've not read the rest of the book. I really just want to dive into it right now, but we need to feel what the original reader felt here, the weight here, because it's a weight that's felt all over the Bible, all throughout the history of God's people. God uses tragedy to bring about triumph. There are so many stories in this book of famine and barrenness, pain and loss, trial and fire. Joseph is sold into slavery. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a fiery furnace. Daniel plunged into a lion's den over and over again. God's people find themselves amidst dark days and difficult times that make you wonder where God is. Do you ever find yourself longing for something you don't have and you deeply desire? Have you ever found yourself in a new place physically, a new place emotionally, a new place relationally, and you're not sure how you got there, but it's sure not what you planned. You ever find yourself in a place where you're just not sure what to do next? Or how about when death strikes or despair sinks in? Maybe somebody you love died a short time ago, or maybe it was a long time ago. 
Maybe it was expected. Maybe it was totally unexpected. But the pain is still real today. And you wonder if it's ever going to go away. Amidst barrenness and loneliness, realities so many of us are familiar with. I think about Heather and I walking through infertility and struggling every single month with these two pictures of God. God, we know you have power to provide children. You've given us this desire for children. So either provide or take away the desire. I don't understand. Or singles who desire a husband or wife or children. Struggling to understand why would God give you such a strong desire for something only to leave it unfulfilled. Or loneliness. You ever walk through times where you feel like no one else really understands? Even those who love you most. Or maybe times when you feel like no one is there to love you like you need it most. Or we hear the snooze in our family or when the job is gone or the bottom line is not being met, whatever it is, and we wonder, where is God in all of this? And this is where I want you to see that even when we think God is farthest from us, here is the promise. God will show himself faithful to us. That's the promise in the book of Ruth. I'm guessing you noticed, but I didn't read the very last sentence in chapter one yet. Naomi comes back to Bethlehem with her Moabite daughter-in-law from Moab. Don't forget, twice emphasized. Then listen to this, end of verse 22. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Oh, I wish I could go into what that means in the chapters that follow, but that's kind of the point. Naomi at this moment has no idea what that means. She is standing there saying, I am empty. But she has no idea that standing right next to her in Ruth is the fullness of God about to be shown in a way she never could have dreamed. She has no idea that God is about to weave together the story of all stories to turn bitterness into blessing through a barley harvest. And that's the point. Please don't miss it, brothers and sisters. In the moments when God may seem farthest from you, unbeknownst to you, God may be laying the foundations for the greatest display of his faithfulness. You say, how do you know that? And the answer is because this is the gospel. This is the story within a much greater story. And this is the promise for all who trust in God. And it's twofold. One, his grace will cover over our sin. Similarly, Ruth was born into Moab, a sinful, pagan, idolatrous, immoral people. She was raised there, immersed in a people unpleasing to God. But don't miss this. Brothers and sisters, this is not in your notes, but write this down. Don't forget this. Sin from your past does not dispel hope for your future. Sin from your past does not dispel hope for your future. Yet God has not left us alone in this state. God has sought us out. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. 
And though Jesus lived a sinless life, not deserving of death, he chose to die on a cross for our sins. But see it, that was not the end of that story because Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the grave and took the most tragic event in all of history and turned it into the most triumphant event in all of history, salvation for anyone and everyone who will trust in him. His grace covers over sin. And not just in our sin. Because all who trust in God, his grace will cover our sin and his mercy will overcome our sorrow. Naomi had experienced great loss and pain in this world and we will experience great loss and pain in this world. But by the mercy of God, we will find ourselves with great gain, a kind of gain that we never could have dreamed of before. That's a guarantee in God's word. And it may not be immediately recognizable. It will likely involve hard days and patient waiting, as we will see in this story. But we can know. We can know beyond the shadow of a doubt, now and for all of eternity, that the mercy of God will overcome our sorrow in the end. Bitterness and calamity and hurt and pain will not have the last word. So I want to close by sharing a hymn with you that's in your notes. It was written centuries ago by a guy named William Cooper. Long story short, Cooper came to know Christ in a mental health facility. He suffered through bouts with deep depression all of his life. Yet when he came to Christ, he discovered that amidst dark days in this world, when he faced the storm clouds of trial and difficulty, he discovered those same storm clouds in the end rained down showers of mercy and grace. Listen to what he wrote in this hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have bitter taste but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. I wanna invite everyone to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. As you bow your heads and close your eyes here in this room and other campuses, I wanna do two things as we close this time in God's word. 
first, I want to ask you a question right where you're sitting, and it's the most important question I could possibly ask you. Right where you're sitting, have you trusted in God's grace to cover over your sin? Have you trusted in God's grace to cover over your sin? I believe God has brought some of you, many of you today for this moment. He has woven together all kinds of circumstances to bring you to this point where you confess that you have sinned against God, wandered from God. And today, and you might receive his grace to cover over all your sin through what Jesus did on the cross. So if that's you, I want to invite you right now to pray, just to say in your heart to God, right where you're sitting, to say, dear God, I am a sinner. And I need your grace to cover my sins. Just to say to God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And today, I trust in Jesus as Lord of my life. Today, I want to be restored to relationship with you, to follow you as my God. With your hope now and your hope for all of eternity. I want your grace to cover my sin and your mercy to overcome any sorrow I have or will experience. With your heads about and eyes closed, if you just prayed that to God, I want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you just to, just to quietly, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, just lift up your hand where you are before God, just as a picture of you saying, yes, today I'm trusting God's grace to cover over my sin. Amen. Amen. Who are walking through circumstances right now that you can identify with one or more of these things that we've just seen in Naomi's life. And if you just find yourself walking through particular trial, valley, challenges in your life right now, I want to pray specifically for you. So if that's, if that's you, just with our heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just lift up your hand where you are if you would just say, yeah, yeah, I need extra grace, mercy, I'm struggling this way or that way. God, you see, you see these hands, so many of them. Can't see all those at other campuses, but so many. God, you know what's going on in every single one of these circumstances. You know better than they do what's going on in those circumstances. You know not only what has happened, what is happening, but you know what's gonna happen. You know what the next chapter looks like and the next chapter, the next chapter, and you know depth of hurt and pain and the waiting and the timing. So God, I just pray, I pray on their behalf that you would give them faith to trust in your greatness and your goodness today. And for that kind of faith tomorrow and the next day and the next day, that you would show your greatness and you would show your goodness. That you would take tragedy and you would turn it into triumph. God, I pray. No, we've just seen in your word that you have power to do that. You do that over and over and over again on behalf of your people. So do it again and again and again in all these circumstances. We pray that you would bring healing amidst hurts. We pray that you would bring joy from pain. We pray that you would... And God, we... We praise you. You have promised. I just think about Isaiah 43. I just want to pray that over those who've raised their hands. Fear not. I have redeemed you, God says to his people.
I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned because I am the Lord your God and you are precious and honored in my sight and I love you. May they just hear those words from you to your people, receive them, rest in them, in Jesus, our hope, in Jesus, our joy, in Jesus, our life. We praise you for covering over our sin, comforting and overcoming us in our sorrow and We praise you for the hope that one day you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So help us, help us to trust in you from this day until that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. Coming up next is Refining Faith. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. This is Sharon Lee with a Refining Faith. For last two weeks, we learned about the meaning of the word refining in Hebrew and Greek. We know that the definition of the refining is purifying a metal by burning off the impurity. But we learned that the purpose for the refining is to prove that the gold is gold and the silver is a silver. In other words, the spiritual refining is not just for the purpose of hardships and tribulations, but the process of verifying if our faith is the true faith through such hardships and tribulations. That is why refining is not something to fear about, but rather it is a chance to test our own faith, as well as something to thank God that we are in the faith by going through refining. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. These are verses from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These are verses from James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. The New Testament tells us to be joyful and happy for refining and testing which proves our faith to our own selves. But do you think that is possible? Do you think it is possible to be joyful and happy while being tested and refined? The Bible shows us that it is possible through one person's life. Acts chapter 6 introduces the story of Stephen, whom we all know well. When there was a problem between Hellenistic Jews and the native Hebrews in the Jerusalem church, the congregation chose seven deacons and solved the problem. Stephen was one of these seven deacons. Stephen was full of grace and power and performed great wonders and signs among the people. Do you think his faith was the true faith? How can we tell if his faith was the true faith? The night when Jesus was captured, his closest disciple Peter swore that he would not betrayed Jesus, even though everyone else does, and gave his words that he would rather die with Jesus than deny him. We were able to tell if his faith was the true faith before the rooster crowed that night. Despite giving his words, Peter denied Jesus three times and left the area when he felt his life was in danger. But what about Stephen? Do you think he denied Jesus when his life became dangerous? 
In Acts chapter 6 verses 9 and 10, some people from the synagogue argued with Stephen, but they were not able to cope with him because he was speaking with the wisdom and the spirit. Stephen witnessed Jesus Christ to them faithfully. So those who could not cope with Stephen secretly induced some people around them and had them to say false accusations that they heard him blaspheme against Moses and God. And because of this, Stephen was dragged away and brought to the council for a trial. Stephen was now facing a test. A time of a spiritual refining had come to him. The high priest who heard all the false accusations the people, the elders, and the scribes made asked Stephen if what they said was true. From Acts chapter 7 verse 2, Stephen studied his sermon in front of all those people. He witnessed to them how God had saved them since their ancestor Abraham, how God stretched his hands of salvation continuously, and eventually how God sent a Messiah to the world. And he admitted that Jesus was the Christ in front of them. He also witnessed to them that they were the murderers, and the sinners who killed Jesus. Those who heard what Stephen said felt guilty and gnashed their teeth at him. They became very furious and wanted to kill him. The death was upon him. Peter denied Jesus in that situation. But Stephen was different. He looked up the heaven with the Holy Spirit and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. People drove him out of the city and began stoning him, but Stephen did not give up his faith. He instead called on the Lord to receive his spirit and died after crying out loud not to hold their sin against them. Stephen proved his faith through the test. He accomplished something that Peter could not. Why do you think Stephen and Peter act differently? That was because one was filled the Holy Spirit and the other wasn't. Peter had not experienced the feeling of the Holy Spirit yet the night when he denied Jesus. A while later, after he was also filled with the Holy Spirit, he witnessed Jesus and faced death just as he gave his words that he would follow Jesus. Refining of a faith allows us to verify our faith. It allows us to verify if our faith is the true faith that delivers us to the salvation. Jesus promised that anyone who confess him before man, he will also confess him before God who is in heaven, was proved through the life of Stephen. I truly hope each of our faith will be verified through refining. That is all for today's Refining Faith. Until next time, goodbye.
our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.